listening to the Studio Interviews. I'm your host, Diana Brown. With us, engineer Dan Wilson, making it all sound beautiful. Say hello, Dan. Hello, Dan. <laughs> He's so directable, and that's what we love. You know, it's been said that where there's a will, there's a way. It's also been said that nothing is stronger than the will of a woman. So today, we'll learn the way of some very talented women and the will that inspires them. Our guest is artistic director of the all-female Shakespearean Theater Company, based in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome, Erin Merritt. Hello. We are delighted to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. Now, women's will. Obviously, we are talking about a Shakespearean company. In the original days of Shakespeare, only men performed the roles. Is that part of the impetus for forming this company? It is, for, uh, for a number of different directions. When you audition for a Shakespeare play these days, you'll notice the after effects of having written only for men, which is, he didn't write that many women's roles. <laughs> Amen, sister. Right, so when, and when the women were on stage, they were being played by boys, so their roles tend to be shorter as well and somewhat less complicated than the men's roles and, and less central for the most mm, part. Definitely. So even though he still writes some, or wrote some of the best roles for women, he just didn't write quite enough of them for us. That's right. So taking, so taking a little uh, uh, artistic license, you created this phenomenal company. Now, you've been around for 10 years, correct? This is our 10th season. Amazing. And you've dubbed this season uh, Regeneration. Yes. Tell us why. Well, I had babies last year. Ooh, congratulations. And we uh, that necessitated some changes in the company, and we really didn't know what that was going to look like. And so we said, well, this is just like starting over again in a certain way. And um, we've, we generate plays. We've generated babies. What's going to happen? And we also were looking at... Uh, the plays that we chose this year are about generations and regenerating and reiterating ideas and how the ideas and the genes change throughout time and over the different generations. Now, has the idea of Women's Will, your company, changed from its inception to now? Besides I think the, the idea hasn't. Okay. The idea is to support women and and girls and to create a supportive and challenging environment so that women and girls come in, they get to do anything that they can dream of, whether they know they can do it or not, that they get to take a shot at it and really um, see if it works. How incredibly empowering. Now, you do some not-for-profit work going into organizations with your shows as well. Is that correct? Yes. The company as a whole is a nonprofit. Okay. And we do, a, what we do shows up in a variety of ways. What mm -hmm. most people see is our, our plays. So we do two plays a year. One is out in public parks, out all over the Bay Area from Berkeley and Oakland to Pleasanton to San Francisco to Mountain View, Hayward. I'm forgetting a few, but we're all the over the Bay place. whole Bay Area tour. Yeah. And then we do a fall show in Oakland somewhere indoors. Okay. That's what most people see. Mm -hmm. When we're not doing those, we're going into classrooms, we're going into recreation centers, we're going to after-school programs, we're going into homeless shelters, and doing mostly classes with youth. We also do the occasional class with adults that is a sort of career-building class of some sort. Like we do all-female uh, sword classes, stage combat classes. We have the occasional... British accent class or something like that. Right Just on. your basic sure. things you need to know to be a practicing theater artist. Especially if you're playing a male role. That's right. Now, what was your very first Shakespearean role for you yourself? 
Oh, gosh. I think it was the narrator in Pericles. Ah. Do you remember the experience fondly? I do. It was wonderful. It was with uh, what is now California Shakespeare's uh, summer program. Lovely. I was 15 years old. And the narrator is this sort of nebulous role. And they actually divided it among a few people. Okay. But I ended up being the, the main carrier of that role, who's always a tricky one to to cast in in the sense of how are they framing this character as relation in relation to the other characters in the play because this character doesn't normally interact with any of the other characters in the play okay so they made it kind of a greek chorus character who mm-hmm. then who was a cat <laughs> who they figured the cat could travel most people don't know the story of pericles so it's it's hard to explain this but in the story of Pericles, the character Pericles travels all around the Mediterranean to city after city after city. And the director's idea was that this cat could be traveling anywhere, too. It could be the shipboard cat. It could be the cat living in any of these towns. And it could just it would have an excuse to be following him oh, that's around. And then she was revealed in the end to be actually the goddess Diana, who had made all of the action of the play happen. Oh, very cool. So that was very exciting. <laughs> and was that what sealed your fate, your future fate with Shakespeare? You know, I think it was a variety of things. Okay, sure. I, as a young child, was always more interested in the male roles. Okay. I wanted to be Peter Pan. I wanted to be Speed Racer, not Trixie, because Trixie never did anything. I always uh, liked, uh, wanted to be Robin Hood versus Maid Marian. Exactly. I mean... You wanted to be, it wasn't that you wanted to be a man, it was that you wanted to be the character that did the interesting stuff. Yes, you wanted to be the protagonist. Which for some reason was always a man. (laughs) Unfortunately. That did not bother me. I didn't think I shouldn't be a man. I was well aware that I was playing a character and why shouldn't I play any old character who just happened to be a man. Now when you first started this company, did you meet any resistance from funders or audiences or other actors? No, we've we've people have really kind of gotten it or they haven't gotten it and the people who don't get it we just don't even it doesn't spend the time yeah (laughs) so the way that the company actually started was that I was going to the Shakespeare auditions week after week after week at all the Shakespeare companies in the area and all the Shakespeare companies in the big towns nearby that you know or Boise Shakespeare comes down here Denver comes here all these various different companies come here and so week after week after week, I'd be sitting in these audition halls with 50 women, maybe, and you knew they were going to hire probably one from today. Right. And maybe one from tomorrow, or maybe one from New York or L.A. <laughs> so you knew your chances of getting cast out of that pool were slim to none. And the other women in the room were fantastic. <laughs> And so not only did I not want to be competing against them in the sense that I wanted to get the role, but I didn't want to be competing against them because I wanted to be working with them. Right. And I wanted to be learning from them. And there are so many men's roles in Shakespeare that you can start in a sword carrier role, learn on the job, and work your way up to the lead roles. In women's roles in Shakespeare, no. There's 
there's Kate in Taming of the Shrew. Otherwise, you're playing nurses or <laughs> serving yeah, there's maids. The nurse, well, but the nurse, yeah, you're not going to complain about the nurse in Romeo and Juliet either. But yeah, or a serving maid who they've sort of thought, well, maybe we'll stick another woman in here for just for some more estrogen in the show, Pretty you much. know? <laughs> <laughs> or just... We need a bodice Because in she scene. looks beautiful or, or whatever <laughs> for some irrelevant reason. So if you've got 50 women in a, role, in a room and they're reading for two roles... Mm-hmm. Then that's 25 women for each role, and probably at least 24 of those women are qualified to play that role. So how are they getting cast? It seems relatively random, and it's certainly going to be based on the men that are cast instead sure. of on their actual talent or the intro- How they look with the group, how right. they, the chemistry between them and a the male actor. Sure. So it, seemed, it just, just seemed completely random. Yeah. <laughs> And I thought somebody really ought to be taking advantage of all the incredible talent in this room. And somebody ought to do an all-female production of something. Of something. Anything. And so I started saying that to people. And everyone said, yeah, yeah, you've got to do that. And I said, well, you know, not me. (laughs) Somebody should do that. And finally, after about six weeks of this, I thought, you know, so many people are interested in this that it's going to be done. And if I don't get to work on it, I'm going to be really upset. (laughs) So I guess I'll just try to bring some people together to do it. Um, And at that point, I just called everyone who said that I needed to do it and said, all right, but you got to help out. Put your money where your mouth is now. Yeah. So that first call, were you just inundated with, with actresses? No, because I didn't, I was an actor. So I didn't have a list of actors. I just sort of informally knew other actors. Mm -hmm. I didn't have an organized, uh, way for running auditions or producing or anything so I just called the people that I knew and said come to auditions and bring anybody that you think might be interested and let me know if there's anybody else I should be calling and you built it and they came yeah pretty much and and what was your first show two gentlemen of Verona oh that's perfect which we build as there are no gentlemen in Verona <laughs> and we just thought it was a perfect one to start with because a it's a comedy so if we didn't play men very well Oh, well. It would still be funny. It would still be funny. It might be funnier. Yes. And secondly, it's such a hard show for men to play these days because the men in it behave so badly according to our modern day ideas. Very true. So you're always looking at these men and saying, why do these women love them? They're such schmucks. (laughs) But I thought if women were playing them, well, who, you know, we could believably say, well, who knows why they behave that way? Uh, It's a mystery to us. Okay. And that as a result, people might be able to see the play as it was originally intended, Mm -hmm. as, oh, well, young men are just fickle, and they just need to be brought into line, and everything's fine. (laughs) Now, where do you stand on the, let's take Shakespeare and put it in outer space, or let's take Shakespeare and set it during World War II? Uh, Well, that's always a loaded question. Um, I'm not against it, per se. Okay. But it has to make sense with the, the play. All right. It has to be saying something that the play is already saying. And not stretching that. Okay. Do you have a play that you, in your own mind, would like to do that sort of juxtaposition with? Well, we have with a couple. Okay. We did a late 60s sort of, you know, Beatles production of As You Like It that Mm -hmm. worked very well because the play is so much about coming from a place of, of being inhibited and then going out and discovering oneself finding oneself out in the forest which that would what lend is itself that? well the greater world right so we thought you know that transition from the early 60s to the late 60s is something that everybody understands as being 
a time and a place and a way that people a breaking out broke free of the the traditional boundaries and you know for for better or for worse sure that's the way that that we see it and and that they that people really found themselves and obviously there we also tie that to the idea of drugs in our minds but sure we thought well we'll, we'll just put in the it's people loosening up it's that's people a- loosening up and so we went from the sort of early 60s kind of jackie o look to oh, uh course. you know beatles crazy you know then bell bottom bright colors how did you uh, costume uh agutic for that one do you recall oh uh, do you mean touchstone yes i do mean yes. touchstone forgive you me you know he was actually a john lennon character we oh, just decided fabulous. he was john lennon in sergeant peppers perfect yeah i like that Aaron, what's the most uh uh, what what misconception about Shakespeare do you encounter again and again from audiences or actors that you'd like to lay to rest right here? Thank you. Good question. I think the one that first comes to mind is that they can't understand him and that he's old and doesn't relate to them. Shakespeare in his time was making up so many of his words that people at the time didn't know what these words meant either. So I always try to tell audiences, uh-huh. don't worry. If you don't understand a word here or there, or even a lot of them, it doesn't matter. You're going to understand the plot, and that's what matters. This guy was a poet. He's, he's messing around with words. That's what makes him interesting. So don't get stuck on, oh, God, I didn't follow that sentence. I can't pay attention to the next sentence because I didn't follow the previous one. Just let your mind open up and watch it and see what you can see and he's the important plot points are in there four to five times you'll get them we have to say he's a good writer yeah he's a good writer (laughs) now you what is your dream shakespearean uh, pants role oh gosh you know i think i've already done that is um was actually uh rosalind and as you like it who is always played by a woman yes at this point, I'm mostly directing, so I have not even thought for a long time about what male roles I would want to play. I suppose I would like to play someone like Macbeth. Okay. I like the fight roles. Okay. Uh, Angelo in Measure for Measure, I'm very fond of, because he's just so bad. <laughs> you like the bad boys. I do. I like the people who are conflicted. I messy, mean, messy, messy yeah. people with problems. Yeah. They are the most interesting. They are. That's why they're on stage. Well, Dan, I'm going to ask you to weigh in here. What is your favorite Shakespearean role or one that you have an urge to play? Let's say you could play a lady's role. Oh, if I could play a lady's role. Oh. Actually, you know, Rosalind is pretty fabulous, and she gets to do an awful lot. I saw a brilliant production recently. So if I was going to do a lady's role, I think she's just so over the top um, and so complex and wild. From um, you know, I do clowns and villains really well. So either Edmund or Edgar in Lear, I would jump at in a heartbeat. Huh. Yeah, those are great ones. Actually, I'd love to play Edmund myself. What probably um, a little ripe in age to play that role. But <laughs> no, you you're you're a petite individual. I'm sure you know costuming would work it out. I would like to know um, what role in casting as you're directing is what role has been the hardest to cast. Oh, good question. Um, the clowns, I think, are always the hardest to cast because you can't make somebody who's not funny funny. True. Yeah. And Shakespeare's clowns are so much based on 
language play, so it's got to be somebody who's smart. And they're also based on ideas that don't make any sense to us anymore in a lot of cases. So you have to have somebody who's just sort of so funny that it doesn't matter if the joke <laughs> actually doesn't make sense. Right. That their, that their delivery is so good that you just can't help but laugh. Like Eddie Izzard. He exactly. could just read the phone book and I'd giggle. Oh, yes. That's and brilliant. At the end of the production, we were doing a bit from um, A Night's Dream. And whenever a joke would come out that was so steeped in the time, I'd have an actor hold up a sign saying obscure joke. Right, right. Hilarious. Up, which the audience completely ate up. Oh, I bet you know, they did. Random jokes about syphilis. And everyone's like, what? Right. Uh, random joke about syphilis. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we had... Actually, that first year that I was studying at Cal Shakes, or it was Berkeley Shakespeare Festival at the time, they were doing, I don't even remember now what play, it, which play it was, but one of the artistic directors at the time had a joke. In, she was in the show, and she had a joke that nobody could even parse. They couldn't figure out what it, what it even meant. But clearly, just the way it was set up, it was obviously meant to be a joke. Mm-hmm. And she said, and the director was agonizing over it agonizing over it you know do we just cut it because it messes up the rhythm of the rest of the scene if we cut it and uh, you know and the actor just said you know let me alone with it it doesn't matter I'll just deliver it like a joke and people will laugh and sure enough she set it up and every night everybody laughed I guarantee you nobody knew what it meant because we couldn't figure it out but we were the ear is trained to hear that joke yeah that's very clever so, but you got to have somebody who's funny. Yeah. yeah. It's 10% what you say, 90% how you say it. Yep. It's true. It's true. There's another one of those uh, equations. Our interviews this week have definitely taken on a tone of mathematical equations. Uh, I'll ask you this question. What is your, um, your equation for, as a director, some people say it's 50% casting, 20% this, 30% that. What's your formula? Oh, um, well, I think it is. I mean, I think most people say 90% casting, and I I think it is 90% casting. And then it's about having a really supportive and fun rehearsal process where people are made to feel safe to bring in their own ideas. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that gets lost a lot and that actors would just do better work if they were encouraged to bring in their own ideas because they're the ones that have to play those characters night after night. So if if it's just the director's vision, then it's the actor trying to create something that they don't necessarily feel. So it's inorganic. Yeah. So I try to give people a really good sense of what a f- what the finished idea is that I want or what I'm trying to get across with the character. Where you're going. At, yeah, at any given moment. And also what I think is the... I don't try to tell them what the through line for the character is, but what I, why I think that character's in that play. Okay. And then I try to guide them to how to get there. A lot of times there is actually a specific product I want from that actor, but I, <laughs> I try to avoid saying, I want you to say this line like this. <laughs> no line reading. Yeah, I try to say... I try to question them. You know, what's going on with you here? I'm not understanding that line yet. Or... What's what's the key thought that I need to hear there, or that the audience needs to hear, or, or what's missing in this scene, or where's the scene starting, where's the scene ending? What changes for you over the course of the that scene? Arc. Because a lot of times, and I think this is more the case in Shakespeare than in other plays, or or in tricky language plays, 
that people are focusing on the language and then they can get lost. The, the other bits of their basic acting can get lost. Yes. And that, I think, is a big reason why people tend to like our productions of Shakespeare over some other productions of Shakespeare. We are really focused on what is happening, what is what the story, want. what's happening at every given moment, how do we make that across, get that across to the audience? What, how does this relate to what the audience is experiencing? I'm sure it makes it way more accessible than a production that doesn't spend as much time. On that yeah, particular emphasis. That's, that is what we hear. We've actually heard, we performed in a jail um, many years ago, and we had somebody come up, or two people come up to us after the show, one interpreting for the other one. And she said, she wants you to know she only speaks Spanish, and she was really dreading this performance because she knew she was going to be forced to sit here for two hours, and she wouldn't understand a thing that was going on, and she didn't care either. And it <laughs> just was going to be the worst two hours of her life. And... She wants me to say thank you because she understood everything that was happening, that's even though incredible. she didn't understand any of the words. That that's incredible. That should and be on your marketing. That was exactly what we liked to hear. What play was that? That I think that was. Oh, I don't remember. I think it was Coriolanus, which actually is. That's even more impressive. Which is really I would hard say to yeah. that's one of the hardest uh, plays I think he has. Uh, in directing, I'm sure you've directed many shows. How many shows have you directed? Uh, Shakespearean shows have you directed? Probably, oh gosh, 11, 15, somewhere in there. That's a goodly number. Yeah. So um, have you ever been surprised, like you felt you really knew a script and then halfway through it discovered something about it that completely blew you away? Every time. That's why we do Shakespeare. I love it. Every time. What's the mo What stands out for you in that? Well, in doing... All female productions, mm -hmm. we see different things. We hear things from the audience that we wouldn't have predicted. In Coriolanus, which is really just all fighting all the time. <laughs> we Shakespeare's Fight Club. Yeah, it is. It's Fight Club <laughs> is really what it is. I was playing Coriolanus, who at one point in the play goes into this city and everybody says, oh, God, he's dead. He's in there by himself. They've shut the gates behind him. And, you know, a few minutes later, he comes out and he says, where were you guys? I had to kill everybody by myself. <laughs> So what we were thinking about when we were doing that show was just how are we going to get the best fights that we can get put together here? And how are we, go and are people going to buy us as manly men? Because we'd only, it was our second show. Okay. We said we'd, we did Two Gentlemen of Verona. We really did that for ourselves. We didn't know or care whether anyone would show up and like it. Turns out they did. That's great. But now we're really going to test, will people buy us as manly men? Uh, or will they just laugh, laugh us out of the park, right? So that was really our entire focus in putting that show together. And we kind of forgot to look at, well, what's really the story and uh -huh. what... I mean, the director was looking at that, but as actors, we, sure. we forgot all about it. And we were too busy fighting. We were too busy fighting! <laughs> and And which actually kind of was the message of that play. They're too busy fighting to really see what's going on around them. Interestingly enough. But so we didn't really know what the, how the audience would experience the play. And we heard this great comment from a friend of ours who was a fight director, a male fight director, and he said, oh, God, it was so great to see your women. They were such great fighters, and I was really looking forward to it because women are often really good fighters, and, and I just was so enjoying it, and then in, during the 10th fight, I found myself thinking, 
why are they fighting about it? Why don't they just talk it out? (laughs) And then I thought, hey, why do I expect men to fight it out? And I expect women to talk it out. Fascinating. Why don't I demand that men talk it out? That's wonderful. So it's things like that that Mm -hmm. we that we may not even discover. It may be the audience that discovers it. That's Uh, very cool. Yeah. Now we have bandied a question around with all of our guests over the past few months. So I'm going to ask you the same question: Do you think live theater is dying as an art form? Oh, that's funny. I asked Martin Eslin that question back in 1986 or something. Because it's been around for a while. The question's been around, and it comes around, and if it ever goes away, it always comes I wonder right how back. Shakespeare answered that question. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Uh, I mean, yes and no. Okay. I think, uh, well, I'll tell you what Martin Eslin said at the time. Okay. I was at college, and he was giving a talk. He gave a talk that was completely uncontroversial, so there were no questions for us to ask about what he had said. <laughs> he was like an egg. There was just no hooks. You there was nothing, Yeah. <laughs> You know, I was like, okay, well, you just told us that live theater is live and it's theater. Okay, so what? So He knew that. Yes, yeah, so I had no questions. Nobody had any questions. So here, here he was wandering around at this reception, being ignored by everybody and looking incredibly pained. And I thought, I've got to throw this guy a line. I've got to talk to him. Somebody's got to talk to him. What can I ask him? All right, so what do you think? Is theater dead? And he said, no, you know, there's this amazing amount of fantastic theater going on in San Francisco. And I said, oh, that's so interesting because that's where I'm from. So who do you think is really great? And I only remember one of the people that he said at the time, which was George Coates, who's oh, not, I love not producing anymore. George but yeah, Coates. and he had been one of my teachers. And and so he was doing all this electronic stuff and all this electronic wordplay, mm-hmm. weirdly. And so I think, yes, in a way, he was keeping live theater uh, alive. And I think people are um, always going to find, I mean, it's a creative medium. That's the whole point. We don't stay stuck in the same thing. We move around a little bit. If something's not working, we try something else. And we hope that we try to stay ahead of that curve rather than falling behind it. Sometimes we fall behind it. Sometimes we're ahead of it. What I notice when I travel to different cities is how different the personality of the theater uh, world in each of those cities is just vastly different from each each other. So in San Francisco, we've really, we do a lot more, I think, conservative work than in a lot of other places. Really? I see a lot more Shakespeare, for example, here. I think we have more Shakespeare here than anywhere outside of England. I think so. And um, partly because Shakespeare works so well outdoors and we're the only place in the, you know, in the states that really has great weather all summer. This is true. You know, that isn't too hot and doesn't have thunderstorms. So we can do outdoor Shakespeare. But there's just, there's a lot of really traditional work that goes on here. When I used to travel to Seattle in the early 90s, I would see almost entirely new plays. And people really thinking outside the, well, inside the black box, but outside the, you know, what I would see in in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think different different areas have different personalities in what they do and it probably suits the people who are working there and the people who are seeing theater there. Um, I do think we are getting a lot more new theater in the Bay Area which I think is really exciting and Woman's Will has been trying to look for the right new piece of theater to do too and we have a really exciting piece that we're doing this fall. Tell us about that. It's called Antigone and 
you think you know what you're getting when you hear the word Antigone, but actually it's nothing like that whatsoever. It's by Mac Wellman, who should be being done constantly, except that nobody has the training to, to handle his his work. Ah. He, he gives you the script, I actually have it sitting right next to me, that doesn't tell me what are the stage directions versus what are the lines, much less whose lines are whose. And it's all about unpacking it during the rehearsal process. Interesting. And... The characters that we know from Antigone, Antigone is many, Creon, they're not played as themselves. They are played by other characters. They're played by the three fates. So there's an extra layer to it. And there's singing and there's dancing. And it's a very funny. Oh, this sounds wonderful. So it's just you're not at all going to see... Antigone when you come to see this <laughs> not your mother's Antigone exactly if you are if you hate Antigone come see this show because <laughs> now, it's it deals with the themes but in a completely different way oh that's wonderful now uh you are currently doing Romeo and Juliet we are tell us how to find it uh, the best way is to go to our website which is www.womanswill.org now the trick is it's woman's will not women's will it's w-o-m-a-n-s-w-i-l-l dot org we say every woman has her own will that's why it's woman's will i love it and we the reason that i send you to the website rather than anything else is that we are at different places every day sometimes two places in one day uh we have uh performances in Oakland, Hayward, Pleasanton, Mountain View, Fremont. I think that's it. Now, if actors want to get involved with your company, when is your next auditions? We have auditions once a year in April, and we accept headshots year-round. Very good. If they can be mailed to us. So wherever you are, if you want to uh, explore your will, uh, definitely get in touch with Woman's Will. That's right. And we thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. 